rocks for lunch. Let's read some scripture together. Before we do this, I just remembered the thing. I want to do a little bit of expectations management. So if you're at home at Calvary, sometimes people are like, what do you even want out of us? Just three quick things, okay? If you call this place home, number one, I, I, I want to help you be amazed and in love with Jesus. This is goal number one. Jesus is why we're here. Jesus is the best part of life. And not only that, but if you're rocking with Jesus, you get to live forever. For me, that's a bonus. I'm just happy to have him now. He's the best thing you can have. And so I want each one of you to meet Jesus, learn about Jesus, be trained by Jesus, be loved by Jesus, and to love him back. That's number one. Thought number two, expectation just for me personally, is I want us to practice not sitting in self-righteous judgment of each other. Okay, so that's culture number two that's really important to me. We do this as Christians. We get really like nitpicky about stuff. And, and out of insecurity or pride or sin, we just start writing each other off. Yes, it's really good to be able to see what's going wrong in our lives and other people's lives. But moving into that self-righteous judgment thing, just Steinbeck, haven't we done it enough? You can email me a story where it turned out good if you have one. I don't think they exist. And culture number three, expectation number three is you got to be willing to change. Wherever you're at right now, if you're still alive, Jesus wants to change you. you got to be willing to change. And if we can do this, focus on Jesus, not be judging each other, but be willing to change, we will have a great church. When one of those things disappears... We're just going through the motions and all quietly agreeing that something is no good anymore. But we're devoted, so we'll keep showing up. No, 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 no. It's about Jesus. We're not here to judge each other. We are here to change. This will be good. All right. Now you know where I'm coming from. Let's read scripture together. The Gospel of Matthew. So these words are God's words. He gave us a book that he says, this is my book. When we're reading this together, we are hearing God who wrote through people directly talking to his church and the world forever. And this is what he says about his son. Then Jesus came from Galilee. So we're in the Middle East. To the Jordan, to John, John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Stop. John the Baptist is being a good disciple right now. When Jesus says, We should do this, you respond by consenting. Okay, so if that's all you learned this morning, you're going to be fine. Jesus talks, we consent. Good. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, so a desert, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And then the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And amen. All right. And as if you've read this before, you know there are, are actually two more temptations before the story's done. But I'm trying to keep it focused for time's sake and stuff. So this is, if you remember, here's the background and here's what's going on. Uh, we're in the nation of ancient Israel, but not that ancient. We're in the time where Rome, the great superpower of the age, which would be like the United States of the age, has conquered all of the Mediterranean and all the way up to England and some excursions farther east, but they are the boss. They're the boss people, and they've got soldiers and governors in Israel ruling over that area, which is a sign to Israel that they aren't where they belong and things are not right with the Lord. And uh, it's been this quiet age where there's been no new scripture come to them for centuries. And then kind of out of nowhere, this guy named John the Baptist shows up. And he's a really interesting prophet because he's just a talker. He does no miracles. But he's doing this big symbolic act where he is preaching at the Jordan and calling Israel to repent of their sins and to admit they're not the nation they're supposed to be and they're not the people they were made to be. And the problem is them. But if they would come to the Jordan and ask God to forgive them, he will, and they can get ready for the hero to come who's going to be their savior and their messiah, and he's going to finally make things right. And there's lots of controversy, and there's lots of conflict, just like in our time, anytime anything happens, half the people hate it, half the people love it, and half the people don't care. And I don't get paid one dollar to no math. But this is John the Baptist's whole mission. And he's dressed like Elijah. He's wearing these weird uh, robes, these like leather robes. And he's got this belt around his waist. And he's eating uh, grasshoppers. But not because it's some um, World Economic Forum jobby or whatever. And uh, he's living this whole symbolic life to say to Israel, now is the big time when the Messiah is going to come. And we are not even close to ready. The best we the best we can do is at least admit to God that we're not ready for his arrival. Now, in the midst of this, Jesus shows up, and he's not famous at all yet, but this is where things are going to kind of get going here. And he comes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist doesn't totally understand everything that's going on with Jesus, and we see that later on in the gospel, but he does understand that Jesus is the one he's been waiting for and preparing for and feeling unworthy to even be ministering in his name, but he knows that this is the one. And so Jesus comes up and says, okay, I'm next to get into the water with all these sinners. And John the Baptist says, what? No, 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 no. You're the only healthy one here. Why would I do this? And Jesus says, don't fret. This is the way it has to go. And he baptizes him. And as he comes out, standing in the river Jordan, standing in the waters of sin confession, God says, this is my son. And the spirit comes down and lands on him. Now, this is where it gets interesting. If God spoke 
audibly to you in a crowd saying, you're my beloved child. And the Holy Spirit took on a form that they call a theophany, I think, or something like that, and landed on you to say, like, now you are going to have the superpowers of the Spirit upon you to do my work. What would you expect to be the next thing you do? Heal somebody? Yes. Preach? Maybe. Go empty out the hospital? Maybe go to Ottawa? Trash something? Right? Start a channel on YouTube? Start selling books with your face on it? What, 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 what would be normal for us if you thought you were the real hot stepper, worded up? That was a little 90s thing there for some of you. I think the last thing many of us would expect would be to go and starve alone for a month and a half. True? Unusual. Okay? So Calvary Chapel isn't the first place to specialize in awkward. Jesus has been doing awkward for 2,000 years. And I'm just trying to keep up. But it is very weird. It is. Like, let's just be honest. We hear these Bible stories, and when you're a kid in church and they tell you these stories, you can begin to think that this is normal. It's not normal. This isn't how human beings behave. So he goes out into the desert and he goes and he meets with Satan. And some of the Gospels, I think, sound like he's almost tempted for the 40 days. This one sounds like he's fasting and not eating for 40 days. And then the big um, confrontation conflict happens near the end. But he's up to something. And so I want to just mine the up to something a little bit this morning, okay? And then I'm going to try to make it really applicable for young people. I, when, on sabbatical, I just really realized my favorite people are like the 15 to 25s to, to speak to. Um, so thanks, thanks for being here. You make it so I don't have to like do this to see if you're here. So I'm going to try to make it make sense to you. Um, Probably will be. I'll get a C plus at best. But in order to understand, like I'm going to use the word symbolic lots, and what I mean by that is that the way God's made the world, things are more. We're not just flesh and blood. Things mean stuff, and how things happen says more than what's happening. Okay, so when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, it's not just a geographical thing. It's not like his, his um, Google Maps messed up or whatever, and it told him to drive out his car off a bridge like some people have done sometimes. It's not just about geography. There is more going on with Jesus going into the desert than just a movement. And so there's lots of stuff going on in this story, and I'm going to bring out at least three things that I see that are really important to know about. The first thing is that this is an echo of the Garden of Eden. Now, it might not seem like it because he's in a desert, but the first spiritual conflict we hear about in the Bible has to do about the devil trying to get somebody to eat something. True fact? And the first conflict Jesus has with Satan is also a story of the devil trying to get him to eat something. And so we're supposed to hear a bit of an echo of that thing. But there is a difference because paradise is gone. 
Our first parents, when they betrayed God by rejecting his word and choosing to side with the spiritual enemy, lost paradise. And God even made it so clear that we're exiled from heaven on earth that he actually made an angel with a flaming sword saying, don't let him back in. Which is something all of our leftist friends need to hear about. There is no such thing as making paradise on earth. And if you try to, you will just kill people. It's not an option to make paradise on earth anymore. What God is going to do is that at some point, he's going to send his son back, and he's going to get rid of everything that isn't paradise, and then the whole universe is going to be paradise. That's the plan, but right now, we cannot make paradise on earth. So Eden is a desert. And when Jesus goes to revisit that initial temptation that Adam and Eve lost, he has to do it in a desert. There is no paradise to recreate this thing. Another story that I think this scene is meant to symbolically remind us of is the story of um, Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt. You might remember this one, the Ten Command or the Ten Plagues, and Egypt, which is the superpower of their time. They're the Rome of their time. They're the USA of their time, and they think they're all this. And Moses shows up with a stick and a brother and says, "Let us go. We're going to go worship the Lord." And they're like, "No, no, 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 no." And so Moses is like. Plague, 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 and everything's destroyed, and Israel comes out, and they go through the Red Sea, and they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up Mount Sinai for how long? For 40 days. How long is Jesus in the desert for? 40 days. And so you have Moses and Jesus both not eating for 40 days. And Moses is going to come down with the Ten Commandments, with the Word of God, which is going to be God's Word to the people. And so we're being introduced to Jesus as the one who's going to come to the people with the true Word of God. Does that make sense? But what happened while Moses was up the mountain in the book of Exodus? Does anybody remember? That's when they made the golden calf. Because God's people cannot wait two weeks. God's people cannot wait a month. Let alone 40 days for God to do something. So on day 38, they go to Aaron. This God who got us out of Egypt, he's obviously abandoned us. You need to do something about this. And Aaron gets all the gold together and makes a golden calf and says, I guess this is your God. And then they go and have one of these like uh, Epstein Island parties where it's anything goes, and it's so bad that Moses actually rallies the Levites to start killing people for how they're behaving. 3,000 people are killed, just to calm them down. So not good. And I think this story is also meant to remind us of the time when the Israelites are ready to go into the promised land, and they're right on the edge of going into the promised land that God has been working for centuries to bring them and vouchsafe them and provide for them and fulfill his promise to them. And what happens is they come to the promised land and they send in some spies, and the spies come back and says, There are, Greg? <laughs> That's okay. You're Caleb, man. You made it in. You're fine. You're good. But they're in, they're about to go in and they say, no, the giants are too big for our God. And God says, okay, then you're not going in for 40 years. You're going to spend 40 years wandering the desert until this whole generation that would not trust me and go in gets buried in the desert, graves scattered all over the Sinai Peninsula. And then the next generation will go in. So all of these stories 
our coming together in the man Christ Jesus, the story of losing in the garden and the story of losing with the golden calf in Moses and the story of losing when it comes to the promised land and all this failure, Jesus is going to win. I think that's part of what's going on Why I'm talking about all this Bible. Because he's not just a hungry guy reading his Bible in the desert. He is the Son of God and the second Adam and the true Israelite. And he came to win every single way we've lost. He is the great Redeemer who's going all the way back to the first loss in the garden and the great loss with the golden calf and the great loss where they didn't go into the promised land and where everybody else has failed before. He is going to triumph completely. That's what's going on. And it all revolves around a hungry guy staying hungry to stay close to God. And you need to hear this because we do this, we do define ourselves and cripple ourselves with the past, don't we? Everything's going to be how it ever was, don't we? Hurts from the childhood, controlling, we're 60 years old, but we're still living like we're six years old, don't we? If you're a therapist or a psychologist and you need a theology of revisiting the past in order to find redemption for the future, this is your story. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going into the greatest failures of the people of God in order to win it for them. And for you and me too. And this is what forgiveness is all about. We forgive so that we have a future. When God forgives us, what he's saying is your past is dealt with and I open up a great future for you forever. Unforgiveness is saying, no, everything will be defined by the worst parts of the past. This is a lot of our politics. Why do we keep going over the same hurtful events over and over and over and over? Because there's power and there's money in unforgiveness. But there's no future. And that works in my heart, and it works in our church, and it works in our city, and it works in our country. Future is dependent on forgiveness. And this is why Jesus is there. He's there to defeat their past and die for their forgiveness to open up God's future. So it was weird. This was a weird sabbatical. I'm just remembering like so many times there were these little visits from the past. All of a sudden Amazon Prime had like a, a Chuck Norris movie. The only Chuck Norris I remember, movie I remember from the past. Braddock, Missing in Action 3. Those guys were nuts. I mean, they're so unrealistic. He's just standing there with his machine gun getting shot at by 40 people and then he gets hit and he doesn't even look at it. It's like not even, that's how they liked it in the 80s, I guess, but whatever. Going back home, thinking about time with my dad, thinking about the last 12 years of working here. And I just so 
I just love Jesus. He wants to go to those places for nations and individuals which defined the future as failure, and he wants to go there to be the winner man. Amen? Okay, that was a pretty quiet amen. What you all been doing the last three months? <laughs> but this is amazing. Like, guys, we write Jesus off. We make him real small. Oh, I'm running out of money. Can you help me? Like that's, that's, what do we want? We just want to feel happy and have some money. Well, Jesus wants to utterly defeat the past. Every, he came to undo the works of the devil. He came to undo the works of the devil. So that's why right when he's having his like best introduction, the crowds are there. This is my son. The spirit lands on him. He needs to go be totally alone and hungry and weak and vulnerable. Because there's something about us. You ever notice this? Like, when do we tend to sin? It's when we feel like there's something we need that we're not getting. Right? I need this. I need this security. I need this pleasure. I need this validation. I need this connection. I need, and God's not giving it to me, so... Rocks into bread. I'm hurt. I'm lonely. So rocks into bread. Which is partly why Jesus had to go into his body starting to shut down from lack of food. So alone. There's no emergency services coming. He doesn't have a cell phone. There's no GPS. He is dead dog alone. Holding on to God's word for our sake. pause. I want to try to take this story and where we're going and unite it to some identity talk. I know, I feel like I misspelled that. Whatever. There was no red lines underneath it, and if I missed that, then forget it. And forgive me. You know, everybody's talking about identity all the time, which is actually good news. It's usually the sign. Right when everybody's talking about it is right when everyone's about to get sick of it, and then it disappears. It's like when they finished uh, Endgame with Marvel. Right? Biggest movie of all time. I don't want to spend another dollar watching another repeat superhero movie. It's just, they killed it. They killed it. They saturated the market. You know, I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but... It's just what happened, right? Then they're just all stuck doing the Disney Plus lame stuff. <laughs> so I don't expect this obsession with identity to last forever, but I do want to equip, especially young people, to think about this stuff rationally so that you're not like absorbed into something that's just going to hurt you in the long run. So I think a, a fair way to think about human identity is to remember that... a Real identity involves having to interact with reality. It has to do with your community and also your personality. And I'm using this word personality as a bit bigger than normal. When people talk about personality, they usually talk about like, are you quiet or loud? Are you introverted? Are you extroverted? Um, There's all those personality systems that people use sometimes. And I'm talking a bit bigger than that. I mean your experience of you as a person. What it's like for you to be you. That's what I mean by personality. Right? 
And everybody's got their own experience. This is one of the weird things about life. Um, Nobody besides Jesus actually knows what it's like to be you. You can talk all day to someone saying, I feel this, and I think this, and blah, 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 blah. And, And you can get so, so close, but you're still kind of trapped being you alone. I mean, I have an identical twin, like a genetic doppelganger. I'm living a sci-fi movie. And we're still quite different in some ways. But there's this weird thing that's like, I'm in my flesh, you're in your flesh, and you can't actually bridge it. I know there's all kinds of sci-fi movies about plugging something into there and then there, and then you can do that. And I don't know if it'll work, and I don't know if it would kill you if you tried it. But you have an experience of being you that is completely alone apart from God who totally knows you. And he is the only one. The Holy Spirit has searched out your entire being. He knows everything you've thought, felt, experienced. He knows all your perspectives on everything. He knows before you were born, through to your, from your conception all the way to your last breath, he has searched you out and he knows you. That might terrify you. Or that might make you feel ashamed. The idea of somebody actually knowing all that stuff you hate about yourself can make you feel defensive and ashamed already. And this is why we need Jesus who knows everything about us and already still chose us and welcomes us. If you'll have him, he'll have you. And everything that needs to get worked on, he's happy to work on. But you don't need to change for him to want you. Because he chose you when you were at your worst. And he knows your worst day. And he'll he'll have you. Like forever. So you've got your personality. And this is you. And you get to experience this. And you know this pretty in depth. You're the one watching the video screen of your own brain running all the time. You're the one listening to your thoughts. You're the one receiving the information from all your limbs as they go out there and touch things or get burnt or put your finger in the socket. That's just you, friend. And that's a part of our identity, thinking about what it's like to be us and our preferences. Um, my, my folks or my mom was really big into cilantro when we were visiting. And there's this weird thing where people either love cilantro or it tastes like soap. Have you heard this thing? So who's pro-cilantro? Put up your hand. Who's the, like, freaky mutant soap people? Okay, good. I did it. I said it. Just kidding. I don't know. People ask me, like, does it taste like soap? No, but it doesn't taste good, but whatever. But that's just part of your personality. It's the same. Is it, a, is it a gold dress? Is it a blue dress? Yanni, Laurel, Yanni, Laurel, and that's just you. And people like playing with those things that make us feel different. But a part of your identity is your community. A part of who you are is whose you are. Okay, we'll get there. Okay, so imagine you, you're on, a, you're on a sailing ship. Yeah, yeah, this is great. And you're in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, this is wonderful. So far, so good. I'd rather be anywhere but here. But you fall off the ship and clonk your head. And you wake up on a desert island all by yourself with zero memories. Like zero, zero. Okay. You there with me? Okay. Are you tall or short? Yeah. Compared to who? Okay. Are you funny or boring? Well, compared to who? Are you even a man or a woman? Well, compared to what? 
You don't know. You've got no memories. You're starting off from scratch. Are you Canadian? American? I don't know. You don't know anything. And you can go and scramble and eat coconuts and go fishing and all that stuff and be and wonder where these skills came from. And you've got a great uh, Born Supremacy movie in the making. But the reality is, is so much of who you think you are has to do with you and your place with the people around you. Okay, are you conservative, MDP, or liberal? Don't put up your hand. I don't want to start nothing here this morning. But in your head, whose you are political, politically matters. And that's just in your head. It doesn't actually exist in the physical realm. It's just who you think you are. You use to define who you are. It's a huge part of your identity. And that's partly why, you know, if someone passes away or there's a significant break in a relationship, it doesn't just mean like there's less people showing up at Christmas. It causes a crisis in who you think you are. And when like a mom or a dad dies, like I know when my dad passed away, I was actually revisiting so many childhood memories with the knowledge that he didn't live anymore. And it changed how I thought about my entire life after that point. It changed my identity because my community changed. Well, there's also this thing called reality. It's not very popular nowadays. Uh, Fewer people believe in reality than they do in Jesus. Strangely. But this is the world how it actually is. There is an existence. There is a world as it actually is. And for one reason or another, you know, we don't actually think about it, but we all function in it. It's this whole thing where, you know, sometimes philosophers will... will, (laughs) Philosophers, those scumbags. I've been reading about lots of philosophers these days, and I don't know if they've done any good. There are some good ones, for sure. But in general, the whole philosophical enterprise from 600 BC onwards has tried to think how the world works without reference to the Creator. How do I think about the world just assuming that the Creator God doesn't exist? And they come up with all these ideas, and none of them last their lifespan. Because the next philosopher comes and says, no, you're wrong. And then the next philosopher comes and says, no, you're wrong. And they've been just chasing each other's tails around in circles for the last 2,600 years. But there, every once in a while, you'll get a good, like, uh, German nihilist philosopher or, or uh, Immanuel Kant or something like that. And they'll come along and say, like, you don't even know the world exists. You're trapped inside your sensations. You don't even know that you're real or I'm real until you kick them in the shins. And then they're very convinced that what you did was wrong. And they really believe in reality. And pain is the great uh, reality check for almost all of us. We all think that we can play a little bit fast and loose with reality until you're passing a candy stone. You know what I mean? And then there is no self-identification out of that. I cannot, like, say, like, I am a dragon. I am a dragon. No, it's like kidney stone wins. Reality is real. (laughs) But I'm part of Calvary Chapel. The kidney stone does not care which church I go to. It doesn't care my political affiliation. It just wants to tear me apart from the inside slowly while I writhe on the floor of the emergency room trying to sing some kind of worship song that will take my mind off of it. 
So I think, and I'm, this is for you young people, because I don't want you to spend your years being deceived. It, identity, who you are, has to engage with reality and community and your personality. And you can't exclude any of these ones and actually be a real person. If you try to deny any of these things, you're going to have to hurt the people around you and walk away from Jesus in order to do that. Now, in our culture, which one of these things gets super, super, super like enlarged out of proper proportion? Yeah, it's the personality one. You look into yourself, you check with your feelings, and this is the truth. Even at the denial of community and reality. If anything, it's the community and personality that go back and forth. And you know, sometimes people, they have a big personality change and then they need to have a big community uh, reevaluation because it does matter, you know. Um, and you can think of your own instances there, but a lot of the clash we experience in our culture is people trying to use their personality identity and their community identity to nullify the reality identity. Now, why am I talking about this stuff? Because I think part of becoming a follower of Jesus and realizing what he's won for us is that he, in the story we read, actually was dealing with these factors as well. Okay. This is how I read it. You can see it different. Because I made up this whole model to start off with, so it's not the word of God, but I just think it's helpful. So as I read this thing, Jesus is going into the realm of destruction, the place where we've lost it, the madness of humanity, and he is going to, in part, rescue us by fulfilling this identity of what it means to be the Son of God. Does that make sense? This is the key phrase in this whole thing. He goes into the baptism. God says, you are my son, who I love. And then he goes into the desert and every time the devil's like, well, if you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? If you're the son of God, I don't even know if he references that third one, but he's like, hey, I could just give you all the, the, every, all the glory of the world anyways. You don't need to go to the cross. But it has to do with this identity thing. But it does hit not just how Jesus thinks about himself personally, but all this stuff. When it comes to community, that's what this whole thing with Jesus getting baptized is mostly about, in my humble opinion. He has to go into the waters of baptism because he isn't just going to go into the desert to fight for himself. He's going into the desert to fight for a people. So he gets into the water and he says, from now on, every loser, every breakdown, every weirdo, every lost cause, every wastrel, every sinner who will turn to the Father and say, forgive me and save me. They are now my people. I adopt them. They're mine and I'm there, theirs. And that's why he has to get into the, that confession water. These are my people. They're my community forever. Which for me... Touches me, it's like, yes, me too. I'm a church guy. If you're a loser, 
I know I'm already sinning against Canadian culture. Don't say bad words about people. You cannot get to heaven unless you have one experience of feeling like a loser before God. You can't get to heaven unless you feel like a sinner at least once and turn to Jesus. Because Jesus' people are the weak and the worried and the wasted. These are his community that he came to fight for. And there are community. And the amazing thing about it is that this is a community that transgresses every single other community boundary. Because even though these guys were mostly Israelites at the time, the church figured out later that Gentiles who feel like losers and need a savior, and white people who feel like losers and need a savior, I'm going to keep hammering this, I don't know if you... <laughs> and, and black people who feel like losers and need a savior, and brown people who feel like losers and need a savior, and if you're a man or a woman, if you're fully abled or fully disabled, if you are weak enough and broken enough to turn to God and say, forgive me, you get adopted. And you become the people of the Messiah, the church, and us together. Well, where's Jesus' personality in here? We, we see it over time, but what's interesting is the most we learn about Jesus' personal experience was that he's hungry. This is the insight into his inner workings. You don't, the Bible can be very sparse sometimes with what it felt like to be Jesus in any moment. You often have to read it from his actions. But in this trial, all we know about Jesus was that he was hungry. And it took time to get this hungry. And again, I touched on it, on it a bit, but it gives me insight into the strength of the character of Jesus where I so often, if things aren't just so great, I feel like God doesn't love me and he can't use me and he's not for me. Is anybody else like this? Like how long do you last where things are terrible before you start telling God he must have abandoned you? Four hours? Four days? Four weeks? This is 40 days of experiencing the stuff that we hate to go through. Just to see the strength of soul of the man Christ Jesus. So that while he's winning us, we should also be just going like, this is the best guy ever. And part of the reason I'm worshiping Jesus better than before is I understand that there has been no human being who has ever gone toe-to-toe with Satan and defeated the temptations. Because there's been some need or some want or some desire or some offering that every single person has sold their soul to get instead of just having simple obedience to the Father up until this point. Which makes him the greatest hero ever. He's the only one who is willing to suffer and die to stay holy to the Father completely. And not just for his own sake, so that he could be the strong man that ties up the devil and plunders his kingdom for all time. He's amazing. I totally respect people who can do important and interesting things with balls. Throwing them and catching them and hitting them and whacking them. It's cool. Why is it every time someone becomes rich and famous, they sell their soul for pleasure and become ashamed? Because they're not him. 
He's the only man who could ever be trusted with all power and all authority and all worship and all fame. Because he won here. And this is why even though I lead a church, I don't totally trust everybody in it. And you shouldn't trust me like Jesus either. Because I am not like this. Things not to say from the pulpit, version 7.1. I, I just want you to see him winning. I want, to see, I want you to see him in his strength, that his body can be wasting away, and he would just say, I'd rather live off the word of God. Then reach out, like we reach out in our culture. You know, we, we are so quick to try to use our technology to turn rocks into bread. And if our technology can't do it, we use the power of, like, self-deception. Just chewing on those rocks. Oh, this is good bread. This is good bread. I'm so happy. Don't tell me I'm not happy. Just lying to ourselves to turn the, the rocks into bread. It's still rocks. And so even in the midst of Jesus' experience of total isolation and hunger, he can be so faithful to his Father. And he does, shows it by holding on to this reality, this reality that the Word of God is reality for us. God's creation is reality, but it's so tarnished. We needed something better than just creation to put our trust in. And God gave us his Word. This is our anchor into reality, the story of God, the testimony of God, the commandments of God, the promises of God. This is our reality check. I just want to encourage you to be in the Bible. I know, oh, I did it. I stepped on the, the pastor landmine. I'm going to go to church today. He's going to tell me to read the Bible. I just knew it. That's all they do. That's all they do. Just, just put it on repeat. Put it on iTunes. Read your Bible. Do, 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 do. 10,000 plays. That's all they ever do. Yeah, I'm doing it today. But I would just love to ask you to commit yourself to a 50-year program of learning God's Word and having it worked into your soul. I believe that if you aren't ready to commit to 50 years in the Bible, you're just playing around. Is that too much? I'm... 20 years in. And it's just getting really good. Make that 50-year commitment. Lord, help me to be learning your Bible for the next 50 years. And then by the time you're 70, then you can judge. Maybe not. But do you see what I'm talking about here? Reality, community, personality. We see Jesus, his personality in the midst of suffering, holding on to the, uh, saying no to his flesh, to say yes to God. In the midst of his community, even though he's alone, he's isolated for the sake of the people of God who have been defeated spiritually in every great contest up to this point. And he's holding on to reality. So that the rest of time isn't just one long being deceived by the devil. Which is all we've got without Jesus. 
Bible says in Ephesians that the natural state of man is to be led around by the prince of the power of the air, just to be moved this way and that way. Well, if you don't like this deception, you can try that deception. If you don't like this a misunderstanding, you can have that misunderstanding. If you don't want to lie to yourself this way, you can lie to yourself that way. As long as you don't come to the truth, the tempter doesn't really care. young people who are you what's real is god real is the god of the bible real who's your people who are you and follow jesus just like i'm a child of god even when it hurts god's people are my people even though we all start off real bad and what's real The word of God is real. And you go from there. Amen? Thanks for your patience. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this time together. Uh, Could you just work this into us, Lord? Lord, that we just need this hero. And Lord, I, I think sometimes we just... We judge ourselves for not being a hero, in our own eyes even. I pray we'd be just be so free of this. The point is not to be a hero in our own eyes. The point is to see the hero and say yes to him and be his people. So Lord, I pray especially for the young people as they're entering into adulthood and figuring themselves out, that reality and truth would be the flavor of this journey and that they would meet you And that we would meet you. And Lord, I give you the future of Calvary Chapel and the plans you want to do here. And I just want to say yes to you, Jesus. Your way, your power, your will, your truth. Lord, I pray you'd help each one of us. Lord, we live in such a culture where we believe in the power of self-deception. And Lord, I'm in that. I'm one of us. So Lord, would you be clarifying my thoughts and removing my misunderstandings and help me where I'm kidding myself because it's more comfortable than the truth. And I pray, Lord, as you take us on this journey, our hearts would understand the depths of your love for us and how you really have chosen us and that we're the apple of your eye and we're the ones you have fought for. And do it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.